Hello and welcome to the third series of the Igniting Change podcast. It's a different and more challenging world in which we find ourselves this time around, so we wanted to reflect the challenges of just surviving in the COVID-19 era and what the Black Lives Matter movement has meant to some of our First Nations people. Igniting Change hasn't stopped working to make this period easier for those doing it tough, nor will it. Yes, we're all in this together, but for some, making it to the other side is just the start of the battle. Our guest today is Keenan Mundine. Keenan's the co-founder of Deadly Connections, an Aboriginal community-led not-for-profit organisation that breaks the cycles of disadvantage and trauma to directly address the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the child protection and justice systems. That's a mouthful, Keenan. I got it directly from your website. But essentially, you're there to help people who get stuck in the in the justice system. Well, it's First Nations people, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're set up in a very sort of unique way where I get to use a lot of my lived experience and I get to use my wife's lived experience and her tertiary qualifications. And we provide supports not just for individuals, Individuals. We, we also try to support families and communities to keep them safer and connected. Are you the first organisation of this type? Uh, in most of the research that we've done, because we've linked the child protection and the justice system together, because they go hand in hand. Um, a lot of people work with, with just individuals and stay on like specific topics where it'd be like uh, juvenile justice or they might just work in um, DV or they might just work in homelessness. Not many people try to tackle such a, a broad spectrum of challenges. Can any First Nations person come to your organisation for help? So at the moment, because of the lack of sort of government funding and funding from, from council and you know the way that sort of works, we are targeting in Sydney the inner west LGA and the inner city of Sydney LGA. We're basically targeting them because with my my community uh, journey and my wife's community journey, we both cross both of those LGAs and we have strong ties within those um, communities. If we open it up for any more sort of um, LGAs, yeah, we're already stretched as it is. Um, it's going to be just an overload of, of sort of referrals and, and, and advocacy that we're willing to take on, but we're trying to get it right. Yeah, well, you can't do the job properly if you're sort of spreading yourself too thin. You touched on, on your lived experience and, and you say that is the key to your organisation's success, that you are talking about things that you actually know about, things that you've been through. So just in, in a nutshell, Keenan, what has been your lived experience of this system? Early childhood trauma, being separated from my siblings, battling still today, you know, drug drug and alcohol recovery, recovering, I'm a recovering heroin addict, uh, early exposure to the criminal justice system, being in the child protection system as a child and, and, and reading my file, files now as an adult of how they could have uh, supported me and my siblings better around, you know, difficult times of losing my parents trying to leave the criminal justice lifestyle behind, trying to get employment with a criminal record, battling with mental health, being institutionalised from 14. So I only came out of the criminal justice system about 25 years old. So for most of my life up until 25, I spent behind bars. Keenan, that's an awful lot. How have you managed to bring yourself out? Well, every day is a struggle. I'm Because of my experience and my extensive involvement, I can never be out. 
you know, even if I don't commit a crime for 10 years and I commit a crime, they'll bring my criminal record to the forefront and they will punish me accordingly, even if it is a minor offence, particularly even around dealing with, you know, uh, like I said, being incarcerated for so long and being institutionalised. I battle and struggle every day with my mental health. Having no role models around and not having a father around, and I'm a father of two boys my, myself now, so I'm learning those skills and how to be the best dad I need to be off I identifying people who I see have good fathering skills and, and I take what I want from them. But it's about now me putting the right supports around me and having the skills to identify when I am struggling and to be able to vocalise them and tell my support networks and to be able to lean on people where I was left to figure it all out by myself as, as a child and as a young teenager and as a young adult. And I'm learning now that people do care and people want the best for me and people uh, want the best for others that are struggling and, and in similar positions as mine. It sounds like your wife, Carly, and your boys provide you with so much of the joy in your life. How much of a difference have they made? Well, if I didn't have my wife and my two boys, I can say with 100% certainty I'd probably be back in prison, if not dead from drugs. Oh, Keenan, that is, that's an awful thing to hear and, and I salute you and I support your journey and the things that you do for other people. If we could talk for a bit about that and in the context of COVID-19, what sort of impact has this had on your community? It had a very, very big impact on my community. You know, I keep talking about being under-resourced, but there were a lot of services that were fully funded by the government and, and federal government and local government to provide services to at-risk people and people that are that are being marginalised and being oppressed that during COVID they shut all of their frontline services down, which only made our job even harder because here at Deadly Connections we do target First Nations people, but we don't say no to anybody. So there was a lockdown in Sydney and we weren't allowed out. But as soon as lockdowns were over, we were supporting our staff to, to have access to the community and go and talk to our clients, talk to aunties, talk to uncles, talk to elders. I hate to say it, but we were in a crisis where we were trying to provide food for, for our community. And, and given my lived experience and my journey, you know, hunger and poverty was a big problem before COVID. It only made it that much harder to be able to do this work knowing that I can't reach them all. Was there a lot of fear that you felt in the community? The, the stuff from the community was mainly around... Uh, well, if you're out here, how come they're not out here? They couldn't understand the difference between red tape and, you know, all of those things that come with running a big organisation. We are very small and lucky. We did have our COVID protection and safety plans. We sent our staff out with masks, sanitizers, and gloves and, you know, all the proper stuff. But our communities were, were more you know, around that connection and, and, and it's hard before COVID, like I said, that to stay connected to elders, particularly old fragile ones and a lot of people that have a lot of challenges uh, within their household, you know, dad might be in prison, kids might be playing up at school. You know, they, these were these were a lot of issues that were happening before COVID and it just made it that much harder. So we were out there, you know, basically being their unconditional love of family to be able to talk to them and, and then support them through the hardest times. You know, it was more mental sort of stress because they didn't know when this is going to end, what they're going to do, when the kids are going to be out of the house. 
You know, it's been now nearly over six months since most children could hug their parents or loved ones that have been incarcerated. You know, that they've stopped the visits altogether and there's no indication of when a family member will be able to be able to see another family member in person. But yeah, the, the main concerns were around mental health at that time because, you know, it, it's such a big problem within our, our communities around poverty and disadvantage that... COVID just made it really hard for them to even seek out help, know who's available, what's available, where it is, can they come to them, can I go to them? You know, all of these questions were, were answered by sending our staff out there and, and just reassuring our mob and our community that we're here, we've got your back and we're going to do as much as we can. Yeah. Public sympathy towards people who are incarcerated isn't generally terribly high. What stories have you heard of that mental burden for people who've been in prison during this whole ordeal? At the height of COVID, we've done a community survey of uh, families and, and communities who have loved ones who are incarcerated and asked them, you know, some questions and asked them to give some sort of uh, narrative about how it's impacted them in the community. And a lot of the kids were finding it really difficult because... They knew that their parent was in prison, but they didn't know they weren't allowed... No visits. See their parent. Yeah. yeah. And, and then vice versa, you know, most of the people that were in there, they stop services having access to custodial um, places, which meant, you know, they weren't getting support mentally, physically, they weren't getting any support. And, and these people were very heightened in that risk. And, you know, there were threats of suicide and, you know, self-harming and, and things like that. And they downplayed it here in New South Wales. But, you know, it's very real. It's very real. It's very raw. And it's very emotional that, you know, we're in this state where officers have safety plans and can swan in, in and out of prisons every day, but we can't have a visitor. So, Kenan, as New South Wales emerges from COVID, how has your community fared in terms of transmissions, in terms of looking at the, I guess, the initial community cost from this pandemic? There's not many people I personally know that contracted the virus. Um, there was some like six degrees of separation, people that I know that I know that yeah. tested positive. But coming back to, to normal now, um, there is still a lot happening, not just within our communities. You know, most recently we got called to a local meeting around the road from our office in one of our LGAs, and it is a youth centre who contacted the police to increase patrols because young people were hanging out in the park and they were taking drugs and being antisocial like young people do. Um, so we went up there and the, the root of the problem was a bit more deeper than that. So we found out that after COVID restrictions were lifted, these young people were allowed back at school, but the high school they attended in three months suspended 50 of them for anywhere up to 21 days. Their families aren't equipped with the skills to look after them. They wandered the streets and they got in trouble. So there's still a lot of bounce back that, that's happening within our community. Yeah. Just going back to, you know, your experience of the justice system, when you were going through all of that, how much difference do you think it would have made to you if there'd been someone like you waiting at the gate when you got released? 
to give you a pat on the back and try and help you on your way? I think it would have made like a really, really big difference. And I'd be lying to myself if it wasn't one of the motivating factors for me to do the work that I'm doing to test the theory. So to put myself at the gate now when young people or older people are coming out and they want to learn something new and to experience something different than the life they were living. But I think for, for me at that time, there, there was really a lot happening within my personal life. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done at such a young age. So that's why I'm very happy and very humbled to be in a position to say, you know, just being there at the gate might not get you to stop committing crimes, but hey, here's my experience and this is how deep it goes and this is how I carry it with me today because one day you're going to want to stop taking drugs and going to prison, but how do you carry that? Is igniting change a bit like your person at the prison gate waiting for you and helping you out in yeah, some ways? The ongoing support and the contact that I've had with Jane and the people that you guys have put me in touch with, man, um, I get more support from a Melbourne-based charity who's not Indigenous than my own people who operate in my community. Well, Igniting Change is very proud to walk alongside you, Keenan, and, and the work that you do. Moving to the next big deal of 2020, and the Black Lives Matter movement is one of the major issues of the year. How has that impacted on the work that Dead the Connections does? It's impacted tremendously, believe it or not. You know, given such such heightened states of, of emotions around a topic and the way in which it came to life, you know, it needs to be acknowledged. But in saying that, you know, the movement has elevated you know, my personal journey and, and my lived experience, what I've been through, and it's elevated the cause and the fight that Deadly Connections is asking for and what we're wanting, particularly around, you know, the incident that happened with, you know, George Floyd, that couple of weeks where people were asking and, and finding out information about Aboriginal deaths in custody and the Royal Commission and how many people we've lost and the injustices that were trying to search services and we were coming to the top. So Deadly Connections is two years old. In that four weeks, we got more donations in that four weeks than we did over two years. Yeah. How do you harness that energy, Kenan? How do you keep fanning that blaze? What can you do? Um, we try and use our social media platforms. We, you know, we post regularly on Facebook. We yeah, post you do. regularly on Instagram. Instagram. Instagram's our got the most traction and the most followers because we do, you know, different sort of posts. We post, you know, facts and, and research and studies around, you know, over-representation. Uh, we also post, you know, good news stories about some of the clients that we're working with, some of the people that have been involved in the criminal justice system for as long as me and being able to get them housing, accommodation, being able to furnish their house and give them hope that, you know, there's life after prison and drugs and crime. But, man, I've been so, what can I say, overwhelmed with, you know, trying to, to get the message out over the past couple of years, you know, because, you know, deaths in custody to me is not new. You know, when I was 17, I had one of the most high-profile sort of, you know, young, 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 young Aboriginal deaths that, that led to the Redfern riots here in Redfern. He was a very good friend of mine. Um, I was in the police cells when, when, when the incident happened. Right. I got bail refused in juvenile court and I was taken back to the centre and I wasn't allowed to see the TV or the news and then they put me on the phone and one of my family members at the time told me, 
that my mate just got chased by the police and impaled on a fence and they're riding in Redfern. So so for me, I'm, I'm very, like I said, very excited that, that people want to know, you know, what's happening here and, and me being in a position to say, you know, this isn't something new, you know, sometimes, you know, we have incidents where, where young Aboriginal people use, lose their lives at the hands of police, but most likely they lock our people up and they go and die in prison. And I guess the other big issue that people can still get behind and influence is raising the age. Yeah, yeah. So that's another sort of project that we're working on is, is trying to get the government to raise the age of criminal responsibility because here in Australia, we can charge people as young as 10 and give them a criminal record and then offer them no way, pathway or support out of leaving the criminal justice system behind and getting employment and reintegrating or integrating back into the community and building a life free of crime and drugs and violence. For a white person even to be incarcerated and then to try and get by in society is pretty hard. How much more difficult is it as a, as a First Nations person? Yeah, it's very well designed to, to keep us very entrenched in that lifestyle. The statistics are very overwhelming. You know, once you have a criminal record, you can't be a physical carer of a child that's in child protection. So, so right now, my nephew... My brother's in prison and my nephew's in care. And I tried to assume care of him when he was two years old. And they refused me because of my criminal record and they refused my partner. And now they're investigating sexual abuse. Oh, Kenan, I'm so sorry. It's, um, you're, no. you know, but you, you are a, an incredible beacon in a, in a very dark place and Igniting Change is so proud to work with you and work alongside you. You know, you're at the coalface, mate. You are absolutely up to your neck in it and it's hard. It's really hard. Even like I can give you an example. We just met with an auntie today. She has two boys involved in the criminal justice system. They're both on community-based orders, but they can't live with their mum because the law says they're not allowed to consort. Honestly, there are so many injustices at the moment and the work that you're doing is making a difference and it's helping to throw down those walls bit by bit. Yeah, so yeah. thank you, Keenan. Thank you. Thank you. I think the biggest thing that I get out of out of talking and breaking down these walls is is not looking at them as a research paper or a statistic and, and bringing the real cost and, and the real effect of being involved and entrenched in the criminal justice system and, and how it affects you when you try to leave it behind. And I think we all need to hear that. And thank you so much for, for sharing some of your story today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.